essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here, volunteer here, love here, restore here. All so that we can travel back outside that place and see it from a different perspective again. I'm Melissa Wade. And I'm Abby Newhouse. And we're here to think and investigate and share stories about the varied places throughout our world, up close and from a distance. In this episode, we take you to Mount Trashmore in Virginia Beach, a landfill that was converted to a park. We discuss humans' relationship with objects and what a better future for trash might look like. We ask ourselves the hard questions, like, do we need so much stuff? Or can we just keep using what we already have? Can we rewire our minds to stop considering our objects as immediately disposable? Come along as we figure it out. Here we go. <laughs> so, we went to Mount Trashmore. What did it look like? A park. <laughs> it looks like a park. It was like a huge hill. It was a big hill. Pretty steep. Yeah. A couple hills, actually. But it had all the necessary elements of a park. There were trails. There was a skate park. There was water nearby, a little pond. There were ducks. There were little children swinging on swings and playing on a jungle gym. Yeah. If you didn't know what it was, was there anything odd that like tipped you off to that something else is at work there the only thing is when you're on top there were some pipes sticking out of the ground but I think if I didn't know what it was I would just be like hmm, construction <laughs> move yeah. on a pipe. a pipe we've all seen pipes oh well what are those um what are those pipes really for uh they're to release methane from that's accumulating from the trash underneath wow because Mount Trashmore is an example of a landfill reuse. It is a park built on top of an abandoned landfill. <gasps> this is so much trash. So much trash. If you think, oh my gosh, how long would you say this is? If you could... uh, That's got to be at least half a mile. Don't like you think? Football fields? Like if we're standing on the end of one football field, that's the beginning. And then that's, that's maybe two more? Yeah, I would, I'd be three football fields. It, it was... It obviously had to be a process, but it opened up in 1974, so Mount Trashmore has been around for a while. Landfill parks go back to at least 1916 when the old Rainier dump in Seattle was turned into the Rainier Playfield. Hmm, that was the first one? Yeah, that's what it says. Wow. I remember, like, walking up the stairs, because it was, I mean, pretty, there was a lot of stairs. A hundred stairs. I don't know. Is that a lot? It <laughs> sounds like a lot. Go up. I mean, that would that would wear my legs out. Yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of stairs. I remember climbing, and and we were like joking around. We're like, oh, just stepped on a washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> there goes a pile of leftover denim. Like <laughs> the whole time, we were like going back and forth. We we're like, this is cool, and then we're like, this is weird. <laughs> yeah, but they call it a movement. Like this whole like landfill reuse movement is like this way to beautify the world and 
and turn spaces into usable spaces. But really, it's kind of akin to the idea of just shooting trash into space. Like, just get it far away from us. Yeah, let's try and figure out, like, where away really is because we just kind of, we toss it without really thinking about it. And you actually have to go to the dump, right, when you throw away your trash. So you see what away is because of where you live. For me, I can just toss it in the the garbage chute in my building and I just don't have to think about it anymore. For different places in the country and in the world, you can't escape it. We just drive it to, you know, the local trash collection site. Or if it's big enough, you have to drive it all the way to the dump and then you can see the landfill in all of its glory right in front of you just face the doom and the crazy things that people throw away like a cement mixer there was a cement mixer there there was a pool once um a basketball hoop like things that people don't know how to get rid of it's stuff that they once really wanted and they used maybe it broke maybe it was just not useful anymore but it has nowhere to go so it ends up in a pile of every discarded stuff. How many of the things do you see that just look broken as opposed to unusable? It's hard to tell because they're piled up so high, but like, I think old or used is enough of a word. Not broken, not unusable, but just old and unused. So like Hmm. there was a, the, the basketball hoop that I mentioned had a crack in the glass at the top. So you could get that refilled you could get new plexi in there um you could donate it to a school you could donate it to a daycare center you could just give it to the kid down the street who doesn't have one and just say oh you gotta pay like 40 bucks to get new plexiglass in there but then it's a perfectly good basketball hoop it still works right but they thought it's cracked we don't play with it anymore so they just tossed it (laughs) yeah yep exactly it's like your first thought is not to see who else might want it and might want to put in that money to fix it. Like your first thought is just like, get rid of it. It's not our problem anymore. And yeah, that's kind of part of why I wanted to talk to Sandra Goldmark, the author of Fixation, because she has made a career out of fixing things and like inspiring people to fix things instead of just seeing a broken lamp and thinking it's garbage. When in reality, it's just a broken lamp that might need like one little piece to start working again. And we're asking people a question while we're here on Mount Trashmore. Um, And that question is, what do you think about hanging out at a park made of trash? I don't, I don't, I don't like the idea of making trash, uh, making a physical hill out of trash um, due to from the possible seepage and whatnot. Yeah. Feels like it's pretty cool once people smell it and it's not harmful. Yeah. The yeah. children love it. It's a great environment. Yeah. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. What's weird about it? It's I don't know. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, pretty good. You wouldn't I even mean, notice that it's helps the ecosystem. I mean, yeah. it's like it was a smart. It's a smart way. I mean, it's a smart thing. It's very nice. Love it. I found two sticks that were like walking sticks. Those are really good sticks. Yeah, right? I'm going to whittle into this feet. We had to, we had to walk right. through a lot of goose poop for it. Yeah. It yeah. That's there were some good skipping stones. Okay. Nice. All the things you needed. A mountain? A hill? A side? Hill. I always yeah. forget that this is made of trash. How does it make you like feel to know that? Corporate America is no different. 
There's trash everywhere. Big corporations don't give a fuck about the environment. Right, right, right. They're literally one of the main causes of global warming. Yeah. I, I guess this is like a thing of like sort of representative that it's like, we'll just put put nice parks over landfills. It'll make it all better. We'll put a bow on make it. Make the ugly go away. But it's like. Let's some glitter. I think there's still like some environmental impact from the trash probably. Like it kind of feels like a band-aid instead of a... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or just like, move the trash somewhere where people don't see it. In the book Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet, Author Sandra Goldmark discusses how humans would pick up a rock and use it as a tool to crack their almonds or kill their prey. Other animals would also use rocks as tools. The difference is humans would pocket the rock, take it with them for their next meal. Other animals leave the rock and find a new one next time. Humans love their stuff. We love keeping our stuff, setting it up on little entryway tables framing it and nailing it to the walls, sitting on it, lying on it, showing it off to other people. We curate our stuff to fit an aesthetic. We have a special affinity for our things too, often naming our cars, our instruments, our wheelchairs, our purses. In a recent Atlantic article, Catherine Himes argues that naming our things can make us more responsible consumers. Our belongings can become valuable extensions of ourselves, Himes writes, if we treat them that way. When we give something a title, we reframe it as an individual rather than a part of a more generic category, which marks it worthy of attention. I feel this kind of empathy towards objects. (laughs) Am I the only one who thinks thank you towards my contact lenses before I throw them away? And what about the teapot whistling? Does anyone else imagine this small, stout object in some sort of pain? We're good at personifying these things. And in a culture of consumption, where we're always buying new things, throwing out the old, and not considering where the old actually goes when we're done with it, perhaps this affinity can be used to the world's benefit. When I talked with Sandra Goldmark, author of Fixation, she brought up the old culture of repair There used to be a watch repair shop, or a jewelry repair shop, a cobbler, electronic repair shop, etc. on every corner. And then that culture shifted. What have we lost in the ease of tossing the old and buying the new? How can we change our mindset to think of fixing the lamp first, instead of throwing it away? Up next, my interview with Goldmark on our relationship with things. Sandra Goldmark is a teacher, designer, and entrepreneur whose work focuses on innovative and sustainable engagement with material culture. She is an associate professor of professional practice in the Department of Theater at Barnard College and has designed sets and costumes for theaters around the country. She also serves as Barnard's first director of campus sustainability and climate action. Sandra is also the founder of Fix Up, formerly Pop Up Repair, a social enterprise that employs local theater artists and other makers and technicians to fix household items, re-envisioning repair as a viable and necessary part of a sustainable circular economy. 
But so number one was just what do you know about people's relationship to objects and how that's changed over time? Well, that is a, a big topic, people's relationship to stuff. Um, partly because as I talk about in, in fixation, it's so deep to who we are as human beings. Sometimes I think we forget about it or we take it for granted. But if you stop and look around yourself, no matter where you are right now, you are surrounded by objects. They are covering your entire body. You're using them to do every single task that you do throughout the day. Communicate, eat, cook, take care of your kids. No matter what it is, if you're a human being, you use tools and you make other objects with tools. Um, so that centrality of objects is something that is um, very common to every human culture on earth. And it's something that um, for me, when, you know, make, made me realize that while we, there are a lot of problems with stuff, um, it's not going away. Like, just like food, uh, this is part of who we are and how we survive and how we live in the world. So we, we can do this better, but we're, we can't get rid of stuff. So we need to just embrace it and find a way to do it better. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And I guess that brings us to the story of Fix Up. Sure. So before I realized that I needed to come to peace with having all of these objects because I was a human being, I felt very overwhelmed and sometimes with my stuff. I had a couple kids and I felt like, um, I felt like the, I live in an, a relatively small apartment in New York. I felt like the clutter was kind of getting out of control. Um, I felt like I was part of this system that felt really stupid and unmanageable. Like I remember my vacuum broke and there was no vacuum cleaner fixer in my neighborhood. Or, and it became obvious that the only solution was to buy a new vacuum. Even though I knew it really wasn't that broken, it was probably fixable, and I felt sort of manipulated and frustrated by this system that was bad for the planet. And, and yet I knew, because I worked in theater where we fix things all the time, I knew it was possible technically to, to fix this object. So it all seemed kind of crazy. So long story short, you know, starting from that broken vacuum and a few other objects a few years ago, I thought, well, let's, let's try it. Let's try to open a repair shop and see if you know, test some of these theories, like, can we actually fix things? Are other people frustrated with this system? Um, and what might an alternative look like? I actually had a friend reach out to me about a broken blender. It's like a year ago, because I had kind of, I've gotten into some like upcycling projects, but I was at a loss when it comes to mechanical things, you know, it's, um, I feel, I felt the same as you. I'm like, I know there must be a way to fix this, but it feels insurmountable for some reason well it is and it isn't it's not insurmountable in that like if you're a really creative backstage theater person like me and my friends were you can probably figure out a way to fix that blender or if you have the time to research online and get the parts yes technically it can be done but the reality is for most people it's pretty close to impossible in the sense that there's very few places anymore that fix anything a lot of products are designed today that, so that you can't open them or so that parts aren't available or the manuals are not available. And we've set up this system where new goods are so artificially cheap that it's also often cost prohibitive to get something fixed. Mm -hmm. So I sort of hold both views that it, it is totally possible to imagine and in fact build an alternative system. But right now you shouldn't, you know, you don't have to beat yourself up about that blender because it's not easy in the in the world we live in today to fix it or get it fixed yeah definitely i think that's something we keep coming back to as well and just different environmental issues we're living in this system that makes it difficult to be a conscious ethical consumer and that's important to point out 
but also feels almost like an excuse at, at some points. And so it's kind of that weird like impasse almost where you just kind of don't think about it anymore. Totally. I, I, I agree. Like sometimes you, you realize this system is so big and I'm so small and what we really need to do is change the whole system. But then that starts to feel so enormous. And how do you actually do that? But I do think the good news is there are steps that everybody can take right now to change that system. And those steps can be at a very small scale. They can be at a community scale. They can be at a city scale, a national level, a corporate level. If you work in business, a, a global policy level, like there's change that can and should happen at all levels. And we can, you can start on multiple levels at once. And in fact, sometimes starting, I think on the small scale is a way to a feel like you can do something right now while we're working on those bigger problems and B to actually understand the problem really well and to begin to open up a conversation about it with your family, with your community, um, with other people who might be frustrated. <laughs> mm, think of it more as an opportunity instead of a, something where you just go dead, <laughs> a possum on the ground. Yeah. And, and, and also not go crazy. Like you're not going to win every battle. You're not going to fix every blender, but you can change the way you shop. We can change our policies. Businesses can change their business models. And so for me, yeah, it's a balance between like that my phone is broken and I can't get this one fixed. And yep, maybe eventually I'm going to have to buy a phone, but maybe I could buy a refurbished phone instead of a brand new one. Yeah. And to rewind a little bit, what do you know about um, how society kind of used to function in um, these places that were like repair shops? Like, why did that change over time? First of all, there's many places in the world where repair still thrives, um, though those places, as they kind of transition into a West American and European economic system, repair is getting priced out just the way it did in the United States. I mean, repair was a very common practice, even right here in the United States, not so long ago. I remember when I was growing up, I'm, I'm in my mid forties. And when I was growing up right here in New York, I remember running errands with my mother. We would go down to seventh Avenue in Brooklyn and like, she would drop off a necklace at the jeweler and drop off the shoes at the cobbler. And we'd go by the grocery store. And then on the way home, we'd like, you know, there was a guy who fixed appliances. Those stores existed and communities all around this country had repair as a common service that was offered. The decline of repair in the United States really can be traced all through the 20th century. It really took off after World War II and has accelerated incredibly in the you know, 80s, 90s, aughts. Basically, as we develop a globalized system where raw materials are artificially cheap and where, most importantly, where labor, international labor has become incredibly unfair, basically. The, the vast majority of people who make our goods are not paid a living wage or not working in fair conditions. That keeps prices for new goods low, which makes it very hard to run a repair shop in the United States anymore. Hmm. Um, so it's a kind of a simple story in a way, but it's important to remember that fixing things is like as common to the DNA of humans as making things was. They're, they're related, the acts of making and fixing. And it's only very recently that we've developed this weird system where we make stuff, but we don't fix it. Like mm. it's, it's, it's absolutely the anomaly as opposed to the norm. If you look at human history. <laughs> Interesting. And I think you're right that you can, we can kind of sense a resurgence of this. Right. And, and again, I guess going back to fix up, um, where is it at now and how has it inspired other people and places? 
So Fix Up was this series of short-term repair shops that I ran all over New York City for about um, seven years, from 2013 to 2020, roughly. And we would um, get a bunch of theater artists together and open a short-term repair shop in different neighborhoods. We did maybe two to four repair shops a year, and each repair shop was maybe three weeks long. So we, you know, ran our last repair shop. I was doing this with my when I had kids and I had a full-time job. And at a certain point, I was like, I need to pause and tell this story. <laughs> Because I felt like we had learned so much fixing all those objects and talking with all our customers. So I put the, the shops themselves on hold and I wrote the book, which is called Fixation. And, and then the pandemic hit. And so now, um, you know, I'm teaching and I'm doing my work and I'm no longer running the actual repair shops, but I'm definitely doing everything I can to get people talking and thinking about repair and about the circular economy more broadly. I think I'm seeing that a lot in clothing. I know that there's still a long way to go with so many aspects of fashion, but you're starting to see these like little tabs that will say like pre-loved clothing, you know, and they're kind of starting to do this like recycling process um, again, which I know is like the tiniest, the bare minimum of what they could do at this point. But I do, you know, you're, you are starting to see these, I think little, little aspects popping up. Yeah, it's really interesting. As you implied, one of the reasons that that sector of the market is making the most strides is because they were kind of the worst and were publicly shamed for being so so bad um and there's some technical and logistical reasons why i think that in the, that sector is moving forward more quickly first of all there's a long history long ancient history of reuse in in clothing that has survived even even the even the kind of rise of fast fashion there's still vintage they're still thrifting they're still sharing clothes between family members like it's a very common act to share clothing so people are mentally used to that second of all clothing is lightweight and easily shippable so the logistics of creating new models for reuse um, and even repair and upcycling and all of that stuff for textiles. Uh, it's, it's, it's easier in some ways than, than other forms of repair or refurbishing. Um, and then also consumer appetite, like people's desire for new clothes and new fashions is quite strong and, and um, sometimes used clothing can scratch that ish itch for people at a lower price point so it, it stays strong like you know they say re, they say resale for clothing is growing 21 times faster than traditional retail and believe me all of the clothing manufacturers are noticing that so while they're under pressure to get more sustainable they're noticing that there's a business opportunity there as well yeah which is yeah i guess good right there's that demand so hopefully yeah we still that. need to turn down the volume on new goods not just all trying to be adding a revenue stream from used goods and repair on top of the existing revenue stream, we really need to be manufacturing and buying a lot less new goods. Definitely. Um, I just want a little more on your views about like the concept of a way that like throwing away our things just, they just disappear. Like any thoughts you have on that? I saw a beautiful art exhibit at, um, gosh, where was it? I want to say Storm King here in New York State um, a few years ago, there was this kind of blinking billboard. It's like one of these roadside, like traffic warnings that you would see, like by the side of the road, if it was like hazard, you know, snow or something. And it just blinked all these phrases. And one of them was 
there is no such thing as a way or there is no a way. It was a very beautiful exhibit, partly because you have this, it's like in a beautiful green field and you have this kind of ugly like roadside signage just like plunked in the middle of the field. So even that, even the object itself to me was reminding me that like that thing exists. It's not going anywhere. Like we can break it down into component parts and materials. We can bury it in a hole in the earth. We can leave it in a field blinking its message forever. But like there is no such thing as a way. There's no magical place where the objects that we create can like disappear to. And in fact, it's one of the miracles of circularity. Like the closest you can get to a way is to break down something into its component materials and make it into something new. Hmm. But by transforming something in a circular method, you're not trying to put it, get rid of it or throw it away, but you are weirdly making it disappear by turning it into something else. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. What are your thoughts on planned obsolescence? Hmm. Well, basically everybody understands this concept that a company might design something in order to break on a sh artificially short timeline so that therefore we would buy a new thing. So planned obsolescence is, is real, it's there. Bernard London in the 1930s gets the credit usually for coining the term, but actually there was another writer, Christine Frederick, who, who used the term before him, and she used the term progressive obsolescence. So it's interesting, the difference. He was proposing this government plan, uh, top-down solution to end the depression, where the government would literally set a, a, a date on objects in which they, were, they would obsolesce and they would be recalled. And he called it greasing the wheels of industry so that industry would make more objects. So they were not trying to trash the planet. He was trying to like, you know, end the depression, a huge crushing problem. It's always important to remember, like, today's solutions are tomorrow's problems. Christine Fredericks also was proposing obsolescence as a way to end the depression, but she was proposing a more taste-based or fashion-based approach where she was encouraging companies to instill this kind of artificial desire for the latest fashion or the latest goods as a form of obsolescence. And what's interesting is today we see both of those forms of obsolescence often intermingled or sometimes even in the same product. Like an iPhone um, has been shown to have elements of what we call technological obsolescence, where it literally might break or slow down after a certain amount of time. And there's a lot of like, ooh, do you have the latest phone? Do you have the latest case? So the sort of more um, taste-based or progressive obsolescence. So both of those kinds of planned or forced obsolescence exist today, and they're definitely a thing. It's definitely a problem, and I, I think we'll never get away from it again until companies transition to rep to a business model where they're actually making money from repair and from reuse, because otherwise they they really have no incentive to make their product last longer or be fixable. Yeah. Or if they get, um, you know, regulatory oversight and are forced to make better products, but I think it has to be a combination of both, of policy oversight and of um, diversified revenue streams. Yeah, definitely. That's one of those frustrating things, right? I so often, it's just the phone's breaking and needing mm -hmm. to buy another one. And I, every single time I think to myself, this is the time that I just get a flip phone and I'm just done with iPhone and all the apps and all the stuff and I never do it. That, the most sustainable <laughs> option at this point is, is you have a couple options if you want to know. One is get a refurbished phone, right? If you want to cut the footprint of your phone, don't buy a new one, hmm. period. Like end of discussion. Two is there are certain companies that make phones that are fixable. And in fact, right to repair 
the US PERG just put out a really great scorecard um, specifically for phones and other products. They're building on this legislation in France. So you can look for a phone that's fixable, buy it used and get one that's fixable and then you're kind of in business. That's and you cool. can wait for the Fairphone to come to the United States. Have you heard about the Fairphone? I haven't. It's a, it's, I think it's only available in Europe or maybe just in the Netherlands. It's modular. It's, um, you know, supply chain is certified or at least transparent. So let's say you, the camera breaks or you want a new camera, you can replace just that component of the phone. Okay. And, or you could replace the battery or you can replace the screen. Like it's a modular phone, so you don't have to get a whole new phone to get one new part. Mm -hmm. And there's another company in Europe I was just reading about that's doing rental and refurbishment as their business model. It's kind of exciting. Yeah. That, you know, it'll come here. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to great. get a flip phone. <laughs> right. No, that's like, that's very cool. And again, yeah, maybe one of those things that starts changing the demand for Apple or whatever, and maybe they start doing something similar. Uh, okay, so this is another kind of abstract question, and we'll see if we can get anything from it. There's this episode of a show called Community. I think it's in the pilot episode where this one guy who says, like, humans can connect to anything, and he, like, holds up this pen, and he's like, this pen's name is Henry. And, like, these girls are like, oh like that's nice you know and then he like breaks it and they're like oh, like they just get so you know how could you to henry right like that's and he's funny. just like he's like that's the point like we can get so connected to something by like naming it or by mm -hmm. you know giving it this personality like we can we can ascribe these things on to objects so i don't know i guess what the question is there but maybe just something like how we can use that skill that humans have to kind of transform the way that we care about things that's interesting. I think it's, there's two things. One, I, I think, yes, we should begin to see the objects around us as having value, as having, you know, a little bit of an identity and that something that we have a responsibility towards, that they're not just there to serve us, but we also have a responsibility towards the things in our lives to, to pass them on or to repair them or to dispose of them properly. At the same time, I also think we don't want to get too precious and ridiculous about it. Like I, whenever people, you know, I don't, whenever I do interviews or they read my book, I don't want them to go away thinking like every object in your home has to be like a beautiful curated thing and you have to lovingly polish it until the day you die. Like that's also crazy. Like the way we live now is crazy. Like buying stuff and chucking it. It needs to be easy. It needs to be simple. Mm. Again, I come back to food. Like, I don't think about every single bite of food as I put in my mouth has to be like a, a gourmet truffle soaked in lemon butter or whatever. Like, sometimes I'm just eating food. But generally speaking, I want almost all the food I eat to be healthy, to be sustainably sourced, to be good for me. I want almost all my food scraps to go into the compost. I want it to be easy and simple to live in a way that's good for me and good for the planet and good for other people. Mm. And that's what I think our goal should be with stuff. You don't need to be a minimalist. Once you've done your Marie Kondo purge or whatever, you should be able to live in a way that's easy and simple and not a big deal. Mm -hmm. So it's not about like holding on to every Sharpie named Henry. <laughs> it's about finding a way to live that's, um, that works and that's accessible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sustainable in that way. Simple and yeah. what works for you. Yeah. I think and definitely. fun and joyful. Like stuff can be a source of joy. It allows us to sit around the table. It allows us to looking at my kid's piano music book. Like, you know, it's a way to, to live your life and, and it, just like food, it's a source of joy, but we have to just 
do it right. Hmm. But it doesn't mean tying yourself up, up all in knots about it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. That anxiety can is the first reason people stop, I think. It's just it's too much to think about. Yeah, and you're not ever going to be perfect. Like, everybody's going to eat something yucky once in a while. Everybody's going to buy some kind of gross, compromised plastic thing. But in general, we want habits that are sustainable and fun and, and healthy. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It goes back to kind of just like you are an individual living in a system that makes it hard to do these things. So right. give yourself some grace. That's the frustrating grace. thing is that, this, <laughs> that it is hard sometimes. What are some concrete steps, things that you maybe advise people, things that we can kind of take with us? Like what's, what's maybe this like call to action, I guess, where should the average consumer start? Well, that, so in the book, I have these five steps. Again, they're, they're borrowed from the food movement. So Michael Pollan said about food, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I love that because he takes this really big, complex, messed up system and acknowledges the messed upness of it, but then says there is a way forward. And the steps are have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it, pass it on. So really simply have good stuff means when you buy new goods, slow down, pause, spend a little extra money and try to buy something sustainably and ethically produced. Not too much, just like food, too much of a good thing causes problems. So slow down how much stuff you're buying. Mostly reclaimed. This is very easy. Turn down the dial on how much new goods you buy and up the dial on used. You wanna rebalance that diet. Care for it, so take care of your stuff, repair it, get it fixed, clean it and then pass it on. When you're done, find a way to get that object to someone who does want it. Or, And all of those steps are things that individuals can do that, again, their mothers and grandmothers probably did without thinking, and that can help you form like healthy stuff habits. I love it. There are also steps that apply, just I always wanna say this, to businesses and to policymakers. There is a business and a policy angle on every single one of those steps. Um, I just like to say that because it's not all up to the individuals to fix this system. We need to change our business models and change our policy to support those healthy behaviors to make it easier for people. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, the people who do have a little bit more sway and control should be the ones listening. But if you're right now wanting to kind of like have a better relationship with your stuff and begin to make changes that will ripple out to your community and to your friends, you can start right now. And it does make a difference. It is one of the many ways that you can sort of shift. I realized at a certain point when we were doing these repair shops that like we were caring for these objects and I started I saw the work of this artist Mir Laderman Ukelis who did who's done this amazing body of work about care and maintenance and service and how devalued it is in our society and then during the pandemic I was thinking so much about that as well like it's not just the care work of you know fixing blenders or cleaning office buildings but also caring for each other like healthcare workers and nurses and teachers, like all of this work of care, whether it's for objects or spaces or, or people, is something that I think valuing that work is going to have to be a part of the larger climate mm. challenge. Beginning to invest not just in fancy new technologies and 
new energy systems, but really invest in, in that work of care uh, in all in all forms of care. Up next, Melissa talks to Faye Cristoforo and Yano Cornillo of Post Landfill Action Network, a company working to eliminate waste in university settings. senior year and my roommate slash best friend Pooja and I had our cars full and still there was a pile. Uh, So I filled up a trash can with what I considered waste and walked down to the industrial sized dumpsters by the road. Down there I threw in the whole thing, trash can and all. But Pooja scolded me. She just wanted me to get that trash can back out of the dumpster. But yeah, the fact that I told you to get back into the dumpster and go get it is maybe a little extreme. Well, no, I think it was on the top. So the dumpster was so full that it was like, it was, yeah, it was like a tower. And I I was just being lazy because our trash can was so gross. Like it was just full of like dried food particles and like probably mold because, you know, we didn't do like deep cleaning when we were in college, but... Oh my gosh, now I totally remember this. Yes, and then we like brought it inside and I said, no, I can clean this, we can clean this, and it'll be fine. I remember this now so well. And it was a perfectly good trash can. I just wanted it away from me. I didn't want to clean it. I didn't want to try to shove it into my car. I just had this idea that getting it away from me would make my life a lot easier. But also some notion that I needed to buy a nicer trash can. But that is a part of consumerism, attempting to show something about yourself with this stuff that you have. And when it's not the right stuff, we just consider what we had to be trash. Pooja saw it a different way. Like I remember my mom, um, well, we recycled, and but like a bigger thing in our family was like reusing everything that we, like she would just always find a purpose for stuff and I never thought it was weird. Yeah, it's like, if something is like perfectly good, like there's almost like this like sense of pride that like, I can make that work. And I find myself like still doing that to this. It's almost like a sense of like accomplishment that I can take this thing that I bought and paid hard money for, use this in, in, a, in a way like that's supposed to be used. And like, for example, like we get diapers obviously for our babies and then I was, I, I'm like, I can turn this into a little bookshelf. So like, kids' books are, like, all over the place right now. So I made a little bookshelf, like, just last week. Wait, wait, <laughs> out of the out of the diaper boxes? Out of the diaper boxes. Like, nice. Why do I have to spend, like, $100 on a kid's bookshelf when I can just make one? <laughs> yeah. That is the right question to ask. Why do I have to buy something new when I already have a version of it already? That's perfectly fine or I can make it out of something that I have around the house. Thinking back to all the stuff that I had in my car on move out day, I remember bringing that all to my dorm room and it came in this, almost this package deal. All the things in this color coordinated pattern and you bring all of them with you to this dorm room to set up a life. 
But all of that new stuff each summer often ends up in those giant-sized dumpsters. And that issue of waste inspired a group of students at the University of New Hampshire to try for something different. I don't know if you've ever seen a college campus during move out, but what happens is pure <laughs> chaos. And so the students there were seeing a lot of waste happening from their, from their move out program. And they were seeing a lot of like perfectly usable lamps, couches, books, what have you, all kinds of different stuff getting just dumped in these huge piles. And so what they decided to do was to collect this stuff, you know, clean it, sort it, figure that all out. And then they had an auction the next year so that students who were incoming could buy used furniture that was still in good condition. And it became the first self-sufficient move-out program, like move-out and resale program of its kind. So the founder at the time, Alex Reed, who's still on our staff, did that with his friends. And it was a program called Trash to Treasure. And that program still exists at University of New Hampshire. And so basically what happened was other schools heard about it. They were like, wow, this is really dope. We want to do this. And from there, Plan was born. That was Ianu Cornel, the Partnerships Director at Plan, the post-Landfill Action Network. Here's co-director Faye Cristoforo explaining the program. Plan, or the Post-Landfill Action Network, is a small nonprofit. We're about nine years old, and we work with campuses and students across the country on student-led zero waste projects. Our work is centered on supporting student leadership and projects that tangibly change campuses through education and infrastructure to create zero waste systems and ultimately long-term change makers to contribute to the Students for Zero Waste movement. As the United States as a whole worked towards its own sustainability goals, dramatically cutting carbon emissions, reducing food waste by half, and investing in clean energy, universities are showing similar efforts, setting their own goals and moving to reduce their negative impact on the environment. Plan estimates that about 60% of global greenhouse gas output comes directly from what we consume, and therefore climate change, waste, and even the social inequities that result are not issues in isolation from one another. Some estimates say the average college student produces about 600 pounds of waste. And so at a university with, say, 1,000 students, that equates to 600,000 pounds of waste. A lot of times when we think of the, the challenge of waste, the problem of waste, we think about stuff, we think about landfills, we think about plastic in the ocean, there's that viral video of the the straw in the turtle's nose, we think about like that kind of visual, but we approach it from the entire linear consumption economy perspective, because we recognize that we can't just stop throwing stuff away. We have to stop and change the entire way that we create and use and ship and then dispose of stuff. So we're thinking about all the way from extraction to disposal, because we recognize that so much of the stuff that we throw away, the, the straw that came out of the turtle's nose, that is made of oil. Plastic is made from oil. So if we're going to address the problem of waste, we need to address all the way to oil extraction. So we, we really approach it from like that entire systemic perspective, which includes extraction, production, consumption, and disposal. That's how we've identified the four, what we call points of intervention. And we see that there are ways to make change in each of those points of intervention 
to create a more ethical and sustainable system. At these points of intervention stand those who want to take action to change that system. And PLAN helps those people figure out ways they can find these points of intervention and do the work to create change. Since PLAN was born on a college campus, it has continued to thrive there. The bread and butter of what PLAN does is advising and kind of figuring out how to do these kinds of programs on other campuses. So we started out with just the move out program and how to do that on other campuses. And we've expanded to all kinds of different stuff, how to create a free store on your campus, how to do a composting program on your campus, all different kinds of zero waste infrastructure. And we also do a lot of education now. So we've grown a lot since 2013. We have 300 campuses all across the nation. Um, and we also have a network of 75 different partner organizations that work with us to kind of create these awesome zero waste initiatives on campus and educate these students. And basically- Those of us who are no longer students, we not only benefit from the work on these campuses on an environmental level, but we can also see the efforts as a model for what can be done off campus. Faye described colleges as mini communities. They have living quarters, communal spaces, restaurants, stores, events, all the things that exist on a larger scale in a town or city, and even larger in a state or country. On a college campus then, students and staff can closely diagnose issues with infrastructure and policy that can be changed so to push towards goals of zero waste. We had a really great keynote to our Students for Zero Waste conference a couple of years ago by Melissa Miles, who's organizer in Newark, New Jersey area, and it was called Garbage is a State of Mind. And she did a really beautiful job of putting words to this feeling that I've had about how, as a society, we label things as trash when we want to distance ourselves from them. So sometimes that's people, sometimes that's stuff, sometimes that's places, sometimes that's ideas. And it's really this idea of things being disposable that we have to shift as a society. People are not disposable. Stuff is not disposable. Even though we throw it away, having it be out of our sight doesn't mean it's gone. And kind of circling back to the like landfill park that you all went to in, in Virginia is, it's trash all the way down, right? Like it's all there. You know, it all, all of that stuff had a life cycle and that life cycle is important to consider when we think about the world that we want to live in. I take a peek around my office as I soak in Faye's philosophy, and I have a lot of stuff. Why do I have a dog-shaped bookend and a monster-shaped pencil holder and a carved purple elephant and a unicorn plant holder that holds no plant? Why do I want to buy more pens, more pillows, more blankets, more records, more sneakers, more dog toys, more doodads? more stuff. Probably because we live in a consumer culture, a capitalistic market economy that attempts to sell us stuff at every turn. Even stuff to store your stuff. I was born, I started collecting stuff. Stuff to play with, stuff to wear. Then we got married and well, you know how it goes. What are we gonna do with all this stuff? So we tried some of Rubbermaid stuff. Stuff to organize a closet, stuff to store stuff, rough top stuff. Even stuff to hang cleaning stuff on. Rubbermaid made our stuff so unstuffed, we started thinking, Hey! We need more stuff! Don't you wish everything was made like Rubbermaid? The only way to break that cycle is to be re-educated. 
to intervene in the linear system. That's the value Faye hopes she is creating. Value not in judging something as trash and something else as treasure, but in a future that is more sustainable and just, while fighting against the idea of trashing as a common tendency, whether it be physically, verbally, or emotionally. For the college students working with PLAN, that big idea can be acted out in many ways. The support for these innovative approaches comes through PLAN's leadership resources, consulting, and their digital and in-person programming. They can help students speak to policy, help them delineate steps to changing infrastructure, offer them connections to company partnerships that can help enact or enhance their ideas. The resources are specific to each program because no two programs are the same, because no two schools are the same. Faye tells me that PLAN can provide varied responses to the exact needs on each campus, along with some core programming. The Atlas Zero Waste program is just one of our pieces of programming that a campus can go through, and it has three different stages. And the Atlas Zero Waste program will help a campus go from a process of analyzing all of the waste streams on their campus, we call it a 360 assessment, to get certified so that they can compare their score and their rankings with other campuses across the country, and then create a, a plan and a task force to execute all of the different campus-wide zero waste efforts that need to happen. Some campuses are in the space to really analyze their entire waste system and some campuses are more in the space of just trying to solve the problem of move out or just trying to solve the problem of food waste. Atlas Zero Waste certification creates a high level standard. So to curb divergence only methods. Like I said before, it's not just about moving rubbish into a recycling bin and still watching it being taken away and handled by someone else. Plan standard pushes for continual progress and innovation. With one of the highest certification ratings among the colleges who are a part of the Atlas Zero Waste program, a small private liberal arts college in Bar Harbor, Maine, named College of the Atlantic. The group on campus that addresses waste and deals with waste is called Resources Aren't Waste. They're approaching the stuff on campus not as trash that needs to be dealt with, but as a resource, which helps them go upstream and start to address what it looks like to use that resource differently, to bring that resource onto campus differently. And I, I would say really the, the biggest thing that's different about College of the Atlantic is how hands-on the students are able to be. There are paid student positions for students, which is, it's a big part of the success at College of the Atlantic is, is a big part of why we do approach our work from a, a student perspective is because it's really gonna be the students who make this better. <laughs> that student autonomy is something of a core value at the College of the Atlantic. It's sort of experimental that way. In fact, students don't choose a major from a list, they create their own. Each student designs their own course of study inside this overarching name, human ecology, an exploration of the relationships between humans and their natural, cultural, and built environments. But COA isn't the only impressive member of the Post Landfill Action Network. Faye told me about a program started by an innovative student at Smith College in Massachusetts. They had done a reusable menstrual products campaign on their campus. Menstrual products are a major form of waste that happens, and oftentimes it's a type of waste that we don't talk about because there's a lot of stigma around menstrual cycles. 
but single-use menstrual products can be really damaging for people's health. And there's a lot of really great alternatives to single-use menstrual products. They pay off over time, but it costs an initial investment, which students often do not have. So they created a system on their campus to have constant distribution of Diva cups, Luna cups, period underwear, several different options. And it was all free, funded by, I believe, the um, student green fee. And then uh, this student wrote a manual, a how-to guide for other students to do the same program on their campus, which is something we are like all about at PLAN is not having students have to reinvent the wheel every time they want to do something. So anytime By connecting not only resources, but campuses as well, small one-campus initiatives become larger ones. Faye told me about the organization's launch of their own Break Free from Plastics pledge for campuses, set into motion back in 2017. It not only commits a participating campus to shifting away from single-use disposable plastics, but it urges them to prioritize things like food security and disability access, making sure they aren't creating problems by solving a problem. So a lot of things that I think are like invisibilized in single-use plastic are like plastic linings. Most coffee cups have plastic linings. A lot of little things, so like ketchup packets, which for an individual feels like such a small thing, but on a scale of a campus, in their procurement, they might be buying five million coffee cups with plastic linings every year. So if we can change what that campus is buying, as opposed to trying to change every individual to use something different, the impact that we make can be so huge. Ianu, being a recent college graduate herself, experienced PLAN both as a student volunteer and now as an employee of the company. When sharing the work of the organization, she often spoke of her school, of New College of Florida. While PLAN was helping her classmates revamp their composting infrastructure, they were working with her to merge Black History Month programming with green initiatives. Every year we have our Black History Month program. So one year we tried to make it all about sustainability and we did like an environmental racism conference. I think the, the theme was like black and green, you know, so black people in the environment. And since we were making that the theme, we tried to make all of the events for the entire month zero waste. And so I worked with PLAN to communicate between the Black History Month planning committee and the Green Association on campus to make sure that all of our events were zero waste. We figured out how to do like digital marketing for everything so there was no paper waste and we did like compostable everything. And it was just really, really cool to be able to kind of meld these two groups on campus who don't usually talk to each other to create this really awesome program for a month. At the end of the entire month, we had like one bag of trash. This bridging of communities, of Better World initiatives, links to PLAN's own diversity, equity, and inclusion values. As a company, PLAN fosters diversity on their board, in their house, and among their members in the attempt to build a more inclusive movement. I've realized how everyone really is connected to the environment and to this problem, whether you see it or not, whether the quote-unquote environmental community recognizes it or not, like we really are all in this. That's the only way we're gonna get out of this, if, if, if everyone really does contribute in all the different ways that they can. We're all in this together. We can't do everything, but everyone with their own unique talents and passions can do one thing, yeah? 
Yeah. 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 Our theory of change is no one can do everything, but everyone must do something. And we want to help every student find their passion and take it to the next level and kind of build this like this life that is also helping to change the system that we work within. Because it's it is gonna be a lifelong process. Yeah. You know, historically environmentalism has been a very white space, a very able-bodied space, a very straight space. And so one of the things that we're trying to do at Plan is make sure if we're saying everyone must do something, like everyone should be included, you know, and they should all feel like they can do something. Every year, PLAN holds events to bring together this diverse, capable, passionate, mission-minded student body. There's the Plastic Free Campus Action Camp, the Students for Zero Waste Conference, and the Beyond Waste Student Summit. That's a different kind of summit than where we started in this episode, the park that is a capped landfill. That summit may be beautiful, but it is literally built on top of a culture of disposability and assistance on pushing things away from us. But that trash is still there. It's not a composting heap, it's a landfill. Plan Summit is meant to build something different. A cultural shift in which we aren't obsessed with throwing things away, but with the exact opposite. People aren't disposable, things aren't disposable. Our planet is not disposable. make a quick list of all the things that we can think of that you can turn something else into. Yeah, let's talk about everything a old salsa jar could be. <laughs> okay, an old salsa jar can be a pencil holder. Um, I have done it where you soak it in water and dish soap. The label comes off and you can just use it as a cup. I think all my cups are jars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of my vibe. Uh, you could use it as another container, so it could hold paper clips or Q-tips or maybe some old earrings that you have. Yeah. Put some dirt in it, make it a planter. Nice. For a little plant. You could turn it into a lampshade if you turn it upside down and fill it full of fairy lights and stick it on your mantle, and you have these really cool lights. So you could build it into something. I'm thinking about like the bookshelf that your friend did, right? Like it could be the legs to something that doesn't have to hold anything like too crazy heavy, right? Like if you have a couple jars that are the same size. Um, they love one type of salsa. Yeah. <laughs> Collect all the jars. <laughs> I think just, again, pausing and looking at these things for just a second longer than you otherwise would. Look at it and see what new life it can be. Thanks for listening. And we owe a huge thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode. To Sandra Goldmark, Faye Cristoforo, and Iana Corneal, thank you for your wisdom on stuff and how our world tends to get rid of it. To the passersby at Mount Trashmore, thank you for letting us interrupt your day to talk trash. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Melissa Wade, and Abby Newhouse. All sound effects and music not recorded by us come from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode on our website, thewearehearepodcast.com. 
on Instagram at wearehere.podcast and on Twitter at we underscore re here. Until next week, we're here.